0: One of the things that Bubba would say to us was, you know why God created people? And she would say, because he loves a good story.
1: (laughs) This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief.
2: On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with Shauna Lee Cumbers. Shauna Lee, thank you for coming in.
0: Thank you for inviting me.
2: I'm enchanted already because you come from a village in Derbyshire, (laughs) which all Americans wish we could be from someplace that sounds so magical.
0: Oh, sometimes it's magical and sometimes it's interesting when the snow is very high.
2: (laughs) And I understand that your husband says that where you live is a roof to keep the rain off the books.
0: yes. Yes, he he considers that uh, we we can see uh, the Bronte moors from our window, Mm. and he's a writer, and he loves books. And I'm always wanting to make improvements, and he says, no, it's just a roof to keep the rain off the books.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You are actually famous worldwide in the storytelling community, and you travel around the world telling stories, and we'll get more into that, also doing workshops – That's part of why we're lucky enough to have you in town here. But I want to, before we get there, go back to your earliest remembrances of religious tradition as a child. And were you raised in one, with one? Tell us that story.
0: Okay. My earliest recollection would be being with my bubba. So the early part of my life was Orthodox Jewry and About 16 years of age onwards, I joined a reform shul Mm. because I I couldn't marry some of the things up in, in my own personal life. But my earliest memory is sitting with my bubba, my grandmother, in the shul, in the synagogue, behind a wooden screen because the women had to be separated. Yes, And the men were downstairs singing, reading Torah, discussing and you would think that behind that screen there would be an awed silence and there wasn't (laughs) the women would talk and chat and the babies would be crying and my bubba would be saying they don't let us speak so why should we listen and but some of the most wonderful moments would take place with the women in that environment and some of the deepest wisdoms that I learnt, I think, so that is my earliest memory,
2: so as you grew up, did you have a a thread of religion? And
0: oh, yeah, very much so. I think I always felt that there was there was something greater than me, there was something that would be listening if I needed to appeal. I remember being very young one day and feeling very worried about something. And I think Jews have a a very vocal relationship with God when they pray. It's more like a conversation. So it would be very much me having a dialogue with God and asking why things weren't going right and all the angsts of growing up. But I always felt at the end of the day... That things would be all right. I can't explain it, really.
2: You had an assurance.
0: Yes, that's a really good word. I had an assurance. So sometimes I would find myself in situations that scared me. I've been in many situations with my work where I've been working and not felt entirely safe. But I always knew I would be all right. I always knew I would be all right. And uh, one of the things that Bubba would say to us was, uh, you know why God created people? And we would say, no, Bubba. And she would say, because he loves a good story. (laughs) And I thought, well, I hold so many stories. He must really love me.
2: (laughs) Let's talk about that. Did you have a choice in this? Or did your grandmother sort of say, her, I'm picking her for this Tradition, and and explain the storytelling tradition.
0: Well, uh, yes, if I could explain it a little, it might give you a a context. Uh, Mm. It's passed down from grandmother to granddaughter. It is a woman's tradition, so it is an oral tradition, because women at the time that it thrived were not taught to read and write, so it had to be held orally. It was passed down within families, But the stories would be told to communities. They were designed to be told to whole communities, to families. And of course, with the events in Europe in the Second World War, if you were a Jewish woman, if you were an older Jewish woman, your chances of survival were minimal, Mm. absolutely minimal. And so a tradition that was thriving in the lowlands, in the Netherlands, as common as the plastic water bottles were drinking from. And you wouldn't think to cherish those or, or preserve them for posterity because they were so common. And it went in five years to pretty much the edge of extinction. And that sounds terrible, but I mean, we're losing languages every day. But it, it was teetering on the edge of extinction. My bubba survived and she had already sent my mother over to England, on one of the last Kinder transports out of, the, out of Holland, and so she had hope. She said you should always have hope, and one of the other things she would say is, um, not every story has a happy ending, but it should always begin with outrageous hope, <laughs> uh, which I love. And so she came to England, and she was living with my mum and uh, my dad when I was born. And whether through amazing foresight, fortitude, resilience, therapy, I don't know. She said the stories kept her sanity in the camps and allowed her to survive.
2: We're talking about a tradition of these women holding thousands Thousands, of stories.
0: You're talking in the uh, the region of 4,000. I have to be honest, I've never really counted them up my husband is a folklorist he often jokes that his only way to get his hands on the archive was to marry it Um, (laughs) and so he's in the business of documenting and counting but there were 12 cycles they were named after rabbis so the cycle we've been working on this week and playing with this week is Manasseh Manasseh as in a a, a rabbi, not in the character in the Bible. And he was responsible for getting the Jews back into England in Cromwell's time. And so by naming it Manasseh, you've dated that cycle. And there were 12 of them, and each cycle contained about 300-odd stories.
2: Even with naming the cycles, how do you have a mental catalogue of the stories?
0: Well, I'm glad you asked me that. (laughs) (laughs) There's a way of learning called the drash, which is one of the things I've been doing a workshop here this week, which is is a set of tools for unpeeling and rehydrating story and remembering it and remembering it in the literal sense Mm. to remember, to put back together. And they live inside you and they are like memories and... I don't hold them all at the forefront. Bubba would say your, your front brain and your back brain. I don't hold them all in my front brain. They're all seated here somewhere. And all I need is one little trigger and that story will play out before me like a film. The way you might walk down the street and just smell one smell mm-hmm. and it will bring back a memory. I can see one thing, one moment, and the story will come back.
2: That's almost like an alternate set of scripture.
0: I suppose it is. They are like old friends.
2: If they hold wisdom, or do they deal with the people's dealings with God or God's dealings with us as humans?
0: I think they deal very much with humanity, but you get figures from scripture moving in and out of these stories. Elijah makes many, many guest appearances and has his own cycle of stories. Adam king david what we would call the malachamavis the angel of death uh, uh, that you have adam eve eve's three beautiful daughters who when translated their names translate as faith hope and love Mm. uh, from the ancient uh, aramaic you have esther queen esther you have miriam moses all of these people but they almost come in almost like archetypes in a story. So there is a mixing of this wonder tale element that I think would hold people and entrance people at the end of the day, but you'd got the sacred and the wisdom of that coming through. And then so when people read what we would call the Torah or the Tana, the other stories informed it, made it richer and and more accessible to maybe people that weren't studying it every day, you know, the, the children the women uh, so
2: when the rabbis were studying Torah or reading Midrash did they have a use for these were they involved in these stories of the women at all did they cross in any way
0: I will never be able to prove because we are trying to find there are many wonderful Jewish storytellers out there and fragments of these stories and, and but so little is documented but I was working with um, some rabbis in London recently uh, at at Leo Beck Rabbinical College and they got very excited because you can pinpoint a moment where in the women's stories where the sacred starts to come in and it's round about and I could get my dates wrong here so forgive me because I'm not a scholar I'm just a storyteller Um, but around about 1600 early 1600s you have the rise of Hasidism Mm -hmm. And that at the time, rather than being the, um, the quite strict form of Judaism that we have now, was almost, um, as my rabbi says, uh, the hippie element. Um, <laughs> he says that it was a great renaissance. It was, let us worship in the woods. Let's dance. Let's sing. Let's find other ways to make praise, if you like. Around about the time of the rise of Hasidism, what you got was a crossing over of these stories. You get the sacred coming into the wonder tales, but you're also getting things like the Bel Tov, the Maharal, these great rabbis beginning to tell great long wonder tales. And I think it would be naive to think that there would be no crossing over of these stories, techniques, ideas, wisdoms, sacred moments, because they appear so strongly. But of course it was only documented on the men's side, not on the women's side, so
2: i'm I'm just in awe of the minds that learn to hold that much information mm, mm. in this women's tradition. How early did this begin for you?
0: I began learning at the age of four through a series of games,
2: mm-hmm.
0: clapping games, skipping games wonderful quests and adventures. So for me, it was a very magical world. And what my bubba, what my grandmother was teaching me was actually the dritzila midrash, uh, a way of looking at the stories by stealth. And then when I was about six, seven or eight, I began to start learning the stories as well. And so it starts and would quite she early. say...
2: You tell me, to check on how the content was Well, it was very, yes,
0: (laughs) it was very interesting. There's a very specific way of learning them. And so I would learn a little and then we would pass it backwards Uh and forwards. And then we would play with it and then we would do a midrash exercise on it. And then she would come back and then she would tell me. And when the story had kind of bubbled and brewed and cogitated for a while, then she would say, right, tell me the story. And I would tell her the story. And sometimes she would, she would just nod and close her eyes and not say anything. And those were the times when I knew I'd done well. Mm. And sometimes she would say, never tell that story like you're doing it a favor. It has been around longer. And it holds more wisdom than you can imagine. Mm. And so she was, she was a very wise person. But she, she just poured it into me, really, I think, slowly, slowly.
2: You yeah. use the name of, of this storytelling tradition or the person, Dritzilla?
0: Dritzilla. Uh, Dritzilla. Yeah, I think is derived, and I'm sure there are language scholars better than I, from the German Drzela, which is a storyteller. Mm. And Dritzilla is kind of almost a Flemish localized derivative of that. Drzela, and then you get the the male and the female and Derivatives of Salem of, or Maisel, which is a story.
2: I wonder if you talk to me about personal practices or observances that make you feel like you're in touch with God.
0: Strangely enough, when I'm telling the stories a lot of the time, hmm. especially when I'm dealing with people like Adam or Elijah or Moses for, or for, Miriam. For me, like just
2: friends. for me, just knowing there are so many stories I have not yet heard about mm. these particular characters is sort of like, where do I sign up? Where do I get the CD? Where do <laughs> I come here? You're... It's
0: a work in progress. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but yes, uh, but also there is a few meditative exercises that you're doing, and um, and sometimes I feel very strongly when I'm telling or when I'm working that I'm not alone. And I I have one moment, and I'll pause before I tell you so that if you wish to edit it out, you can. And on this particular telling, I was I was telling stories in a burnt-out building. There had been a, a terrible event, and people had asked me if I would come and tell stories, mainly for the children who were quite traumatised. And so I was telling stories, and the actual stories that I was telling weren't particularly sacred but I always before I start kind of invoke you know I'm not doing this for me I'm I'm doing it Mm -hmm. there is more wisdom here than I would know you know do what you want with the stories sort of thing and then I started to tell and the number of people that discussed and didn't just come up to me but discussed that they felt that that there was a lot of birds in the room because they were aware of a lot of wings, but there were no birds there.
2: Oh, it's a beautiful story. We're not going to cut the story with the wings and the birds. That's beautiful. well, like I just—I've
0: never told it before. Actually, that's the first time I've told that since it happened.
2: There we go. Yeah. I think you must have many people come up and say at the end of a telling session, are those true?
0: <laughs> oh, yes. Excellent. Great question. Yes, of course you do. Uh, you get many people that come up and say that. And, and I suppose the answer for me is uh, when I start to tell a story, it's as real to me as a memory I have yesterday. It has to be to honor it. But when it's over, it's, it's your story. It sits in your heart. Mm. So it's what you choose to do with it or believe. But also I think there are always grains of truth in any story. So for example, to riff on that question, sometimes people will say, of what use are traditional tales in a modern world with all the things that we face? And I will say there is always a soldier that has walked with death. Mm. There is always a child that is afraid of the dark. There is always a woman in a tower who has been silenced. So Sadly,
2: yes. you're right. Yes, yes. Yeah, the truth of these stories, there are so many definitions of that word in itself. Sometimes those stories might hold more truth than an actual something that someone had tracked down the yeah. date and the time and yeah. verified the fingerprints. And <laughs> yeah,
0: a tangible truth, yes, yes. yes.
2: How do you interpret Bible when you read it? As, as the Word of God?
0: Well, <laughs> obviously uh, we work with Torah, Gamaliel, the Tanakh, mm-hmm. those, those books. And for me, I primarily look at them as a history of our people. And some of them are uh, metaphors and stories. I look at some of them as direct wisdoms. It's fascinating. If, have you ever been to a shul, to a synagogue? Uh, yes. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I don't know what they're like in America, but in Europe and England, the the rabbi will start to read, the Torah will be read, and obviously there is a respect for that. But then people will start to argue. Well, I don't know whether I entirely believe that, or because there is no punctuation or vowels in the Torah... It is also open and there will be this enormous what we call (laughs) fetching and discussion, but it is done in such a beautiful and respectful way Mm -hmm. that at the end of it, people walk away and you feel that you have had an experience, a spiritual experience, but you might not have got any closer to what your truth might be. So I actually, I love having a, a good read, as my husband says. Because I'm dyslexic, he reads a lot to me. And he will be reading and then I will go, oh, that that reminds me of a story. And so it's it becomes a conversation not only between us but with the higher powers yes. as well, you know.
2: And is that, I'm trying to think how to ask this question without leading the witness. <laughs> <laughs> There is that elevated sense that you talked about, even if there are some uh, heated thoughts and discussions about the meaning of this or that verse, or about a story that's been told. There is that certain elevated feeling. Do you interpret that as the presence of God?
0: Yes, I think it is. It, it is very hard to pin it down. But I think it's the whole thing when there is one or more gathered and I, and I honestly believe whether you are talking or quetching in his name, <laughs> I think he cannot help but listening and, and be there and be part of the discussion.
2: That opens up a whole new field of behavior for me personally. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of excited about exploring that. <laughs> what, what are moments or happenings or realizations that have made you feel that God is working in your life? or that you're being led here or there, or that there are answers to be had?
0: Um, There have been times in my life when I have really had to trust. Small example, somebody phoned me up one day and uh, and they said, uh, how do you become a professional storyteller? And I said, I don't know, it just happened. And they got quite angry. They felt I was not revealing enough. And finally, I said, you have to love story so much that even if you weren't going to be paid, you would have to tell. And the next day, my phone stopped ringing. And I, my work dried up. It was the strangest thing. It transpired that my website had gone down and the phone line that had been in another house had been cut off and they hadn't told me. Mm. But the interesting thing was the very thing that I had said I was being tested on. And I didn't know how we were going to eat. But I did have to tell I would go into the local school and then somebody asked if I would do something else. And then one day there was a knock at the door and this guy said, I've been trying to track you down for the best part of six weeks. Your website doesn't, has gone down. Your phone isn't working. And, uh, and I don't think I had a particularly well-functioning email at the time. And it was like for six weeks, I just had to trust there was always food on the table and the bills were paid and it was almost like I had made that statement and I felt like a higher power was going, well, you put your money where your mouth is now. You've said that, but can you live by that? And I found I could. I just somehow knew that it would be all right at the end of the day. And after six weeks, the phone started ringing again and the work piled in because the phone line had been reconnected, somebody had done something with my website and put it back up. But for those six weeks it was like there was a lot of trust, but I actually felt not a test, a test is the wrong word, but it was a a journey that I had mm. to take before mm. I could move forward a bit more.
2: And you found that you were out and telling? In the schools or wherever, yeah, even it might though be. I
0: wasn't getting paid, I would <laughs> I would go to the school and say, "Would you like a storyteller for the afternoon?"
2: Shanley, what should I ask you that I don't know to ask you?
0: Oh, that's cruel.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> what should I ask? Um,
2: or is there something that you think? You know, I really hope I really would like to leave this thought or share this expression.
0: I think there are many things about story, but I think what I would say is. Bubba would say, people say stories can change the world and Bubba would say, no they don't because they have existed for many thousands of years and the world has yet to fully change but what stories, and be those sacred stories or wonder tales do better than anything is they create a space where the difficult questions can be asked where the difficult conversations can take place. And those questions and those conversations will change the world.
2: Ah. Well, I could not think of a better place to end.
0: <laughs> Thank you very much.
2: Shonalee Cumber's storyteller extraordinaire. Thank you for speaking with us in good faith.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
2: Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the second half of the show, we'll hear a bit of live storytelling from Sean Lee and the panel of listeners as they discuss the ideas presented by our guest. Back in a moment with more of In Good Faith. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief. Here's a little snippet of our guest Shona Lee sharing a personal story with a live audience at the annual Timpanogos Storytelling Festival.
3: Good Good evening. It's fantastic to be here now. They said to me, you've got a few minutes give people a little taster. Well, the tradition, most stories last for eight days. So, and then I thought, I have an idea. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you my only personal story. And it's going to introduce you a little bit to the Jews of Britain. There is an area in London called Stanford Hill, and it's where... All the British Jews tended to immigrate into you have Orthodox Lubavitch, you have Reform, Liberal. My father would say you would be riping rabbis off of the bonnet of your car on a Saturday. <laughs> and we lived there for a while. My best friend was Muslim. She was called Anina. And we were so young we hadn't realized we were supposed to hate each other. We get on very well. She was two years older than me and she had a flat, an apartment, you would say. And it was an old Victorian house. And if you can just visualise this for a moment, the front room had a big bay window. That was her bedroom. The back room was the sitting room. The big glass Victorian conservatory was her kitchen. I was round her house on a Saturday. Now, a Saturday was when I should have been in shul, in synagogue. We were there, talking, and she was grilling pork chops. two pork chops on a grill pan and she was wafting them and she was going go on try some and i went i can't i was feeling pretty mischievous anyway that i was there and and i'd like to say at this point i did sniff but i didn't inhale so that's okay (laughs) and there's these pork chops it doesn't matter how old you are i'm 40 now and i have an 18 year old but the minute your parents catch you doing something you shouldn't you're 12 and we were there thinking we were really grown up and there was a knock at the door and she rushes into the bedroom, looks through the window and she goes, it's my parents. And she hands me the grill pan and she says, hide. (laughs) There is nowhere to hide. I run into the kitchen, but it's all glass. And then I have an inspired idea. I'll go and hide in the garden. I run out into the garden with these two pork chops and a normal person would have just put the grill pan down, but I couldn't. It was like an unholy union between the two of us. And I ran into the garden and I hid behind a bush. It was winter. It was all twigs. And then I see... Anina going round with the spray to hide the fumes, and her dad's coming into the kitchen, and I think, they're going to see me. Why well, didn't just put it down. I have no idea. But I had my next brilliant idea, and it was this. We have things in London and all through England called jennels, and they are little alleyways that run around the backs of the houses and out into the street. And I saw a door in the garden, and I thought, that will run into a jennel and I'll hide there and then I'll come back. So there we go, the, me with the grill pan and I'm going round the washing line, round the bush, round the, And I make it to the general and I open the general and I rush through thrusting a grill pan with two pork chops straight onto Stanford Hill High Street on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> if you, any of you are old enough to remember those Busby Berkeley movies where people peeled off If you can imagine rabbis leaping to get out of the way. And I'm there. And then I see my own rabbi. (laughs) Rabbi Pincus. And I'm there. And I said the stupidest thing I've ever said in my life. I went, they're not mine. (laughs) I'm looking after them for a friend. And he walked towards me, and then it kind of turned into some odd cop show. As he walked and said, put the grill pan down. <laughs> I can't do the sensible thing. He said, put the grill pan down. <laughs> I, went, I can't. He went, she peels my fingers off, takes the grill pan, opens the wheelie bin, the, the trash can, throws the entire grill pan, pork chops and all. And I said, Please don't tell my mum. <laughs> he said, I will never tell your mother again as long as I see you in Shawl next Saturday. <laughs> And that is possibly the end of the story, but for two short things. One, can you imagine when that little Orthodox Jewish woman comes to empty her trash on the Sunday? She's gonna go, hi me, the Catholics are at it again. She's gonna have to get the very rabbi that put them in there to come round and bless the bin. Years pass. I'm now a grown woman. I have a small baby of my own. I'm standing on stage in the Royal Festival Hall and I'm telling this story and I forget, in the front row is my mother. <laughs> with the entire kosher Nostra with her. And as I'm telling her, her face is like this. I leap off the stage at half time and I go, I'm really sorry. And she went, I have known since the day it happened.
1: <laughs> and this
3: is Talmudic logic, folks. I said, Rabbi Pinker said he'd never tell you. And she said, indeed, he never did. He told your grandmother while I was in the room.
2: <laughs> That's our guest, Shona Lee, telling one of her less traditional stories to a live audience. Thanks to the Timpanoga Storytelling Festival, who recorded it, and to Sam Payne and the Appleseed, where it was aired on BYU Radio. What do stories mean to you? Are your family experiences and stories part of why and what you believe? Stories from ancient scripture? And why are stories so important to a community? We invited a group of people to listen to our guest and then respond. Marcus Smith is a radio professional with interests in gardening and the environment. He has heterochromia iridis, which in him means his left eye is green and the right is brown. He's host of Thinking Aloud on BYU Radio. Emily Bell Freeman is a best-selling author and motivational speaker. She's mother of five and a lover of football, scripture, and simple joys. Nate Christopherson has a bachelor's degree in media art studies from Brigham Young University. He works as a video creator and is approaching his first wedding anniversary. Suzanne Christensen has run The Acting Company since 1995, Shakespeare for
4: children ages 3 through 18. As Shauna spoke about her grandmother, I couldn't help but think about my own grandparents and the stories they told. And it was clear to her and she conveyed to me and to all of us that she cares deeply about these stories. And I do, too, about the stories that I've inherited from my grandparents. And I had to ask myself, why were those so important? They seem like they're foundational stories. Is this just a human thing that everybody comes equipped with grandparents' stories? In the Jewish tradition, it seems to have more of a formalized kind of function. Ours were just more casual storytelling. But they mattered so much to me.
1: Yeah, that's so true. And I was actually with a neighbor last night, and we started reminiscing and sharing stories. And all my kids came and gathered into the room. It's so interesting how stories have the power to gather. And it doesn't matter if you've heard it before. People will say, oh, tell that one time again. Tell that story again.
5: In some ways, I think it matters. It matters that you've heard it before. Those those are the ones that we like to go back to. I mean, we like to hear new things too, but very often the things that make us a family or that make us a people or that make you know are the stories we've heard before. That's how we know who we are.
4: You know, my grandmother always told a story of her grandmother coming across the United States on the plains, bringing china from Denmark putting the China in a cabinet, keeping them here in Utah in the rural countryside for years until she, as a four-year-old, tried to climb up the China cabinet, pulled it over, and all of this China brought across the plains came crashing down. And the story, as she told it, was always, and my grandmother never said a complaining word. She just said, Geneva, are you all right? There was supposed to be some kind of a moral in that story. I never remember the moral. I remember the China coming, crashing down, and I hear that story over and over and over again in my mind. I know it's supposed to teach me something. I know there's supposed to be that wisdom that Shauna Lee was talking about. I'm sometimes a little so entranced just by the story itself that I don't really grow or become a better person from the story. It just sticks with me. And is that so bad?
5: Shauna Lee said, Not every story has a happy ending, but every story should start with outrageous hope and i think that the story you just told is an example of that here's this woman carrying incredibly fragile unbelievably breakable uh, kind of a silly thing to bring across the ocean across the across the rocky mountains right but she gets it here and why does she do that you know there's the, there's there's this hope for the life that she's going to build in the future and the people that are going to share that in this and this posterity and the objects are destroyed by her posterity. But what turns out to be important is the posterity. That's where the outrageous hope is. I mean, it's it's a sad story, but outrageous hope all the way through And it. And
4: of all the times I've rehearsed that story to myself, I've never seen the connection that you just pulled out of it, the idea that the hope is in the living being, the grandchild, not in the material object. Even that, I'm kind of afraid of the idea that I might be too reductive with it, that I might water it down. That's a really potent message. I can't shake that story.
1: And that's the power of stories, I think, is the listener gets whatever the listener needs.
4: She kind of said that too, didn't she? Yep.
1: And I love that they have the power to connect. I love when she said, there's always the soldier that has walked with death and there's always the child who's been in this experience and there's always the woman who has been here. And I think that's the power of a story is it connects you to wisdom or to hope or to whatever it is you're in need of in that moment in a way that just wisdom wouldn't.
4: Emily, what you're saying is that these stories help us. And I'm just wondering if you've ever been helped by a story.
1: Oh, always. I am a lover of stories like she is. So this whole conversation of hers just spoke to my soul. I love people who teach with story. I think we do it as mothers, but we see it in Scripture all the way through Scripture. We see these stories being told, and you take what you need from whatever it is in that story. It's why we're drawn to movies. It's why we spend time reading. There's a lesson in every story.
6: I studied narrative I was a a film student in college, and we, we talked about narrative. We talked about how, well, some of my professors referred to films or talked about viewing a film as you would a person with the same sort of charity that you might view another person. And a good story has conflict. A good story has contradiction. A good story has failings. That's what people are. And stories allow us to kind of disembody the failings of humanity and kind of put them in this nebulous external abstraction, which is a story. But then we were able to discuss that without singling out any particular person
1: Mm
6: -hmm. uh, who's present. Not, I mean, some stories are about a person who's in the room, but the idea is that a narrative can be examined by all people with a sort of uh, equality Mm -hmm. of point of view, because we're all experiencing the same story, albeit from different points of view.
1: Yeah, and and what place you're on, what place you're at in your life at that time is how you're going to hear the story in that moment, and there's power in that.
6: And that changes with subsequent experiences with the story, Mm -hmm. subsequent film viewings, subsequent listenings to a telling.
2: This is a conversation in good faith with a group of listeners sharing their thoughts on the first half of today's show with Shona Lee. Now back to the
4: conversation. I have a nine-year-old son who loves the story of the prodigal son, and he returns to that. He's just said flat out, that's my favorite story from the Bible. And I know that within my congregation and within my church experience, oftentimes we race ahead to what we're supposed to learn from the story and we kind of bypass and short circuit the story itself. I think my boy is still in that stage where he's just processing the plot and the characters and the basic delineations of the story of the prodigal son being lost, coming home the resentment of the brother. I don't know that he is really happy to race ahead and say, and thus we see, and get the lesson out of it.
5: I think that's a characteristic of what you're experiencing with the story about the China is a kind of a trained impulse to say, so therefore, therefore we learn. You know, this story must be embedded within me because, because I'm supposed to get something from it. I don't know that I that I buy that view of story. I think it sticks with you because it's a, a horrifying and beautiful story. I mean, it's... It's earth shattering. It literally... For me, <laughs> for, for me it is.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think, too, the power of a good story is you being able to find yourself everywhere within that story. And you think about the prodigal story. And sometimes I'm the boy in the field working. And sometimes I'm the boy who's feeding the pigs. And sometimes I'm the father. And sometimes I'm the people who gave that boy nothing in that moment of great need. And it's so magical how a story can move you in whatever place you need to learn. And and what the prodigal was for you when you were 18 and what the prodigal is for you now is probably two totally different things. And that's the power of a good story.
4: And yet there's something of continuity here. Uh, Shauna Lee talked a lot about the transmission of story from her grandmother to her. She's taking up the cause of being able to recite stories. She wants these to carry on. She doesn't want them to evaporate and to disappear. The, The very continuity of the story, even though it can have different interpretations for different audiences. There's something there to me that just ties it into this whole matter of religion and faith because it seems to me that belief and hope and charity and these things that she was talking about, that she – the wisdom that comes from these stories. uh, I guess I was going back to those three daughters of Eve. That's Mm kind of stuck in my mind now too. Um, The foundation that religion is supposed to provide, something solid to hang on to, that relates somehow to – the, the, the transmission of a story, where the story gets through intact. It doesn't fall apart. It, it, it will matter for me. It will matter for my children. It will matter for my grandchildren. And, and because it will matter, I almost have this obligation to impart it and to pass it on. I mean, there's religion. There's faith. There's spirituality in this practice of storytelling, at least for Shana Lee. And I, I, I get that because I think I've experienced that myself.
1: I was fascinated with one sentence that she said that just reminded me, which happens to me often, how good God is to each of us. And it was the moment when she said she was dyslexic. Did anybody notice that? I heard that. that. It popped out. I thought to myself, how amazing that her gift is to tell these stories that were memorized. She didn't have to read them. She didn't have to go to her place that was her weakness, but but God looked down at this little girl who he knew what her struggle was and knew she would triumph over that struggle through these stories that a grandmother would pass down to her. And just how individual God is, how all-knowing he is about where we are and, and working with us at our level, whatever that is, how he meets us in those places but doesn't intend to leave us there. And and provides ways for us to excel beautifully with whatever the gifts are we've been given. I thought that was a a really magical part of her story.
5: Marcus, you mentioned stories coming through intact. This last autumn, I was listening to a, a La- Appalachian folk singer talking about her life. She she knows over nine hundred folk songs. She was talking about how they were mostly women's songs you know, transmitted through. It was reminding me a lot of the things that Shauna Lee was saying. She told a story about performing kind of for the first time in a at a university, the university where she was a student. And her family was there performing, and they were all these amazing singers and folk musicians. And they were going to sing a particular song about um, a woman who was badly used by her boy, and then abandoned. And there was a, a word in it that she had been ruined. And the, the singer talked about, or the, the the singer who was speaking, who's older now, but she was a student then, and she felt very self-conscious. And she wanted to fix that word because she, she knew that the word should be ruined, right? And she sang the line, and her grandmother stopped the performance. And she leaned forward, and she sang the line again with the word ruined. And she said to the audience, you've got to forgive her, she's young. And then she said, "Ruined is worse." And and I'm thinking about what Shanely said about her grandmother saying, "Never tell that story like you're doing it a favor." I keep thinking about our need to make a story mean something, to make it fill a mission, to to decide what it's for and figure it out. That's presumptuous. It's it's it's, (laughs) it's incredibly presumptuous, and I feel like I feel like stories are. And we are, and we interact with them, and it does change, and it does go back and forth. But I, I'm thinking all kinds of things. You know, the the idea of steadying the arc, and you know, I mean, just just all kinds of. I my work is with Shakespeare, and I've seen so many Shakespeare performances that I feel like, wow, this director really was doing Shakespeare a fa- a favor in this production. But was really saving Shakespeare from his.
4: Instead, it got ruined.
5: Instead, it got ru- ruined. Yeah, I, I was thinking about, about a friend who often talks about singers who will just trust the melody, who will just trust the song. I think that sometimes we, we want to create a meaning. We want to figure things out because we don't trust, because we're living in a world where, where things are all over the place and out of control, and we want, we want to create order. We want to impose you know, a progression. Shauna Lee uh, often said a number of times in, during the course of the interview that she had a sense that all would be well. And I think that is the bedrock foundation of faith, that a story well told, in that story all will be well, whatever it is that happens. They don't all end happily, but the right kind of story in it all is well. And we can just sit back and let that be and not have to do it a favor by explaining to it what it's for.
6: When Shauna Lee was telling the story about feeling the presence of birds during a telling Mm -hmm. of a story – I feel that stories can be definitely a connection to the past, to the subjects of the story, and to the storytellers themselves that have come before. I thought particularly at that, that moment in the story about a recent funeral I attended. My, my wife's grandfather passed away, and you know the people telling stories about him, and he was quite a storyteller himself, and th- those things sort of will keep him with us. There was a song that the congregation sang at this funeral, That included a line to the effect of the people that are gone are still here with the people who remember them. And that's what stories will do, help us remember the people that are gone. So whether or not the story is even relevant to the person's life or their significance, the fact that they told a story and that we remember it, it maintains that connection.
4: Well, this kind of goes back to Shauna Lee's comment from her grandmother that why did the question, why did God create people? Mm -hmm. He loves a good story. Yeah. Yeah.
5: He loves a good story.
4: It's almost impossible for us to imagine any person who isn't their story. And it's almost impossible to imagine God himself unless it's the story of God and the story of God's workings in our lives. I don't know any way to get out of that, I don't want to call it a stricture of narrative, but the fact that we exist within our stories. And then she also talked about the truth, and or Steve was asking her about the truth of story. Does that really matter? And They got into this issue of metaphor versus the factual basis of a story. You can get into all of those discussions about the relative nature of truth within our stories. I'm kind of with Shauna Lee that that you can let the stories live almost irrespective of trying to pin down the historicity of the events. The life of the story is in the people who tell them, the transmission of them, and the preservation of them in a way that it gives me a kind of bedrock that I can turn to when when I do have those times of I I need an answer, or I need a way out, or I need better understanding. I need that wisdom.
1: Well, and I love when um, she said, what stories do is create a space where difficult questions can be asked. And when she said that, I was like, is that true? What does that mean exactly? It, it made me want to start going through and thinking, how does that happen? How is it that a story can take us into a place where we can ask those difficult questions?
5: It's interesting because we're talking about approaching stories in a faithful way. I do think that looking at stories as a place where difficult questions can be asked I don't think that's something that happens to us naturally all the time. I think it's something that has to be fostered. I think you have to create an environment with the people that you're raising, however, you know, or people that you're meeting, what you know, friends that you meet that that your space is a safe space to take issue, to question, to say, this I liked, this I didn't. And if I go to a movie, let's say, like Nate used the example. And someone says, I really liked that movie, and someone else says, I really didn't, that we can be okay and we can continue to talk, that that doesn't become a point where we shut down. No, you have to like that story because it had a good moral it taught it taught a good moral and you know, the the good was rewarded and the bad was punished, and this is the definition of fiction. I think that's actually something we have to train ourselves to do.
1: That is something that happens in my family all the time. Yeah, we, mine too. We love going to movies. Mm-hmm. We generally love to go all together. And there's two questions that we ask all the time. One of my favorite questions to ask my kids is, who were you in the movie? Mm-hmm. Because you think you would always choose to be the hero of the movie. Not true. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting as you ask. That's an, a fascinating question to ask people when you walk out of a movie. Who did you relate the most to in the movie? And And to hear the movie... The, the story of the movie, the moral of what was happening from that point of view is fascinating. But also what you're talking about, we generally don't have the same views when we walk out of a movie in our family. And, and my kids are passionate about whether they love or hate the movie. And as you're saying that, it reminds me when we heard Shauna Lee say...
4: About the synagogue and the yes, disagreement. about the synagogue. Yeah, absolutely. And when,
1: and when there was no punctuation and there was no... And it allowed people the ability to talk about Scripture passionately and and say what they thought they it meant. And, and sometimes they didn't always walk away uplifted, but they always walked away like they had had a good conversation. And it made me start thinking... Am I good at that in my house, with my kids? When we, when we open scripture, do we have those passionate conversations about
5: what we believe and and what that story is? And is it safe? Mm-hmm. Is it is it a safe place? Because I so agree. Our favorite part of it was seeing a play or a concert or a movie or what have you, or reading a book you know, passing the book around till everybody's read it, is the sort of the drive home when we get to. Take it. Sometimes we'll go to something, you know, a restaurant that's open, just so we can all sit down and look at each other and talk about. And we have a favorite question too, which when someone says, "I didn't like, you know, whatever part," the question is, "Okay, so how would you have fixed it?" Hmm. You know, you are you're the director, you're the writer, you get to fix it. How would you have fixed the movie? And that that leads to this really deep conversation of. Well, if I didn't like this part, something must have been wrong. So, what was wrong? You know, what? And and this really digging, and then how could you have straightened it out so that you felt like the story went the way it was supposed to go, not to a happy ending? That's often a problem that we have: is mm-hmm. that the, the ending's too tidy, or we know we didn't like it. But but just how can we how can we measure it out? And I and I'm thinking about what, how glorious it would be if every if more people were comfortable doing that in their faith. Okay, you're uncomfortable. So what how would, would you, you do? fix it?
6: Yeah. We have a current narrative, which is our own life. What's going on right now? How, do we examine that with the same fervor that we examine these stories that we encounter in movies or plays or what have you? Uh,
5: <laughs> that's a killer question.
4: <laughs> and you all three are severely advantaged over me because it sounds like all of three of you studied movies in, in, in college and in film and, <laughs> and narrative. Uh, yeah, the, the, the question I think that Shauna Ali is asking us implicitly and even being willing to have an interview with Steve is, do these stories matter And how do you make them matter? And uh, can I maybe help you to be convinced that the stories matter, that they matter to our faith, that they matter to our daily walk in life, that they matter to our our sanity or our spirituality or both?
1: Well, and I love when she talked about God loves a good story, but then she, she kind of turned that around and said it's stories that actually connect her to God. And just that reciprocal relationship. And in the
4: moment of telling the story yep. too, when she was actually enacting a story, that was a, a special moment for or could, or had the potential to really be, I would call it a spiritual moment.
1: I thought it was fascinating when she told us about that experience she had about really having to live what she was teaching. And she said, you have to love stories so much that even if you weren't being paid, you would still have stories to tell
6: that quote actually reminded me of when i was uh, visiting with a faculty in the film school and uh, i was deciding whether or not to enroll in the program and he said this is a program that you only do if you can't really do anything else and that made me stop and think like oh, is this storytelling realm something that i want that that i personally want to uh, to get into i can't say that i have a, as profound a confirmation of of, of faith in myself as, as she did i don't have that matching story but that, that, that moment where you have to kind of uh, examine what you're doing I, it just reminded me of that.
1: And it made you love her even more when she came out of that six weeks and she was still as passionate on the last day as she was on the day she received the phone call. And it made me think about my own life. I tend to be a storyteller. I love telling stories. And it just made me think to myself, am I, am I as passionate about what I do That whether or not it was doing good for anyone else, would I still come back to this is the place that brings me the most joy and the most connection with God and the best connection with people.
2: That's our time for today. Thanks to our panelists and especially to Shauna Lee for sharing her stories and her faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds tell their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. We hope you found value in today's conversation and we welcome your thoughts and ideas about the program. Reach out to us anytime to suggest a guest or share your comments via email at ingoodfaith@byu.edu. at byu.edu. Find all of our shows archived online for listening or sharing at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. Subscribe to our podcast through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced with help from Marcus Smith and Christine Knuckleby. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join us again soon, right here in Good Faith.